How's everybody doing today? Great. Judges chapter 2, as Pastor said. I'm not going to do a lot of recap here. Uh, Judges 1, we find out the very beginning. Joshua has passed off the scene. And Judah and Simeon kind of band together because God called Judah out specifically saying he's going to be the one to kind of fight on your behalf. They start winning these battles. They keep up what Joshua had started. And then we got into verse 19. And this is kind of where we finished off last week. Verse 19, they could not, the last half of the verse, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron giving us the indication they tried. This particular enemy was possibly a little more advanced than they were prepared for, possibly a little stronger than they had gone up against. Now, I mentioned this last week, and there's no evidence anywhere in the Bible here that they asked God for help, which is one of their major failings. They took all of this on themselves. Beginning of the book, God actually says, the very beginning here, uh, let's see here, go to verse uh, let's just start at verse 1 of jo Judges chapter 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. So they finally come up against an enemy that they cannot stop on their own, but they don't ask God to take care of it. They just kind of gave up. And that, that incomplete victory, that, that if you will defeat to the will, which I think is more of what happened than almost anything else, had a ripple effect on all the other major tribes. As you look through verses 21 down through verse 36 of Judges chapter 1, it is just tribe after tribe after tribe. The house of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. They tried, but they kind of gave up pretty quickly and decided... Let's just keep the Canaanites here. And what did they do with the Canaanites that were left in their area? They taxed them. They put them under tribute. And then next, the tribe of Benjamin decided, hey, that's a good idea. There's money to be made off these pagans. Let's do so. So they did. They started taxing them. And by the time we got down to the end of the chapter, going into verse uh, 32, the Asherites, those of the, the Asher there, the tribe of Asher, dwelt among the Canaanites. Now they've gone so far as they're not even just like the Canaanites are living in our group. We're just living in their group, commingling here, which is literally the exact opposite of what God told them to do. So we've gone from a single major loss in verse 19 to by the end of the chapter in verse 36. We're talking, by the way, only like 17 verses of your Bible, not a huge span of time. We've gone from a single loss to... What's so bad about these people if they can pay us taxes? And that's a massive change, by the way. Judges chapter 2 is where we start to really get into the cycle. And honestly, I only plan on getting through the first like 12 or 13 verses today. I'm just telling you up front, right? Because if I don't get through that, then I feel a little bit better. Um, but we're going to actually pause because verse 13 is of mild importance to the rest of this particular book, but we're going to start here in verse 1. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Verse 2, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice why have ye done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare 
unto you. And let's pause here for a moment. We are introduced to a new person in Judges chapter 2. Look at verse 1 again. And, and an angel of the Lord. How is Lord spelled in your Bible? Is that in all caps? It should be. It should be in all caps. Meaning, this is most likely a Christophany. This is Jesus. This is the Lord himself coming and talking. And he gives us some indication of the fact that this had to have been the Lord himself. Look at how this section is written. It's all in first person. Let's reread parts of it. And said, verse 1, I made you to go up out of Egypt. Who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? The Lord. This, you do realize, read through Revelation, the angel unto the church at Ephesus. The angel, the term angel literally just translates as messenger, okay? In that portion in Revelation, that's written to a pastor, we okay? The messenger of God. That, those guys are not angel of the Lord, all caps. This one is, and he's talking in first person, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Nobody else can make that claim except for God himself. We okay? It goes further. And have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. Who made the promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God did. God is physically talking to these people. He is here in person talking to them. And the very end of verse 1 may be one of the most important statements in this entire book. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And if you read throughout the book of Judges, God is the same. It's the people that change over and over and over and over. And he's reminding them, I'm the one that delivered you. I'm the one that gave you this land that I promised hundreds of years ago that you are now sitting in and living in. And I promised I'd never break my covenant. I would never leave you nor forsake you. But then he gets into verse 2. Verse 2 is where you run, start running into a bit of a problem. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars. He's just reminding them, guys, I've already covered what this is supposed to be. You're supposed to kick everybody out. And possess this land 100%. This should be Israel only in this land. By the way, Joshua wasn't the only person to remind them of this concept. God reminded them of this decades prior. Go to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. And this, what we're going to read here in just a moment, goes hand in hand with verses 2 and verse 3 where God actually goes on explaining what would happen if they choose not to follow here. Numbers chapter 33, look down at verse 55. Numbers 33, 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, okay, going back to Judges 2, 2, you shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. So they're supposed to, if, they're, if they don't drive out the inhabitants, then it shall come to pass, or in Numbers 33, 55, that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. You ever gotten a sty in your eye? That's, it's amazing 
how such a tiny little infection can be such a massive problem. I mean, that can literally ruin like days in a row for us as adults. Just some like little tiny, you realize by the, by the way, sty is kind of like a human version of like a pearl and an oyster, just not as fun or pretty, okay? But that's, that's, that, that can ruin your day. That can ruin your week. That can ruin a whole chunk of time, correct? Pricks in your eyes, that, that little thing. Just, you, you can't get it out. You ever have an eyelash that somehow go in the wrong direction? And no matter what you do, you just keep stabbing yourself in the eyeball? One of my daughters came down bawling her eyes out the other day. What happened? I poked myself in the eye. Bummer. Hey, I mean, what, what do you do? You, you jabbed your finger in your own eye. I'm sorry. Feel better. Don't do that. By leaving these people in here, it's like, they're just going to keep poking poking and they're going to be an annoyance but then it goes farther thorns in your side you ever get that that stitch I run a lot I don't usually get that problem much anymore but when I first started running like you know crossing the street at any pace above a snail and I was <gasps> and your your side hurts and it, it's there's there's some obnoxious feelings to that you ever get that <clears throat> that Pepto-Bismol moment you know, where it just, ah, and you're just, this is going from just a discomfort and annoyance to painful. You realize these are going progressively worse and shall vex you. There's never a time anywhere in your Bible where the term vex is used in a positive light, ever. If something vexes you, it takes everything in our power to not strangle it to death. Whether that's our children asking us the same question for the 4,000th time in eight minutes, or if it's the guy in front of us that's going 42 miles an hour in a 55 zone on Route 15, because there's always one, okay? That vex, that, that's not positive. So this goes from an annoyance to a discomfort, possibly painful situation to, I think I might commit murder to get this over with. Why? Because they didn't obey. Judges chapter 2, God's reminding them of this. By the way, God himself is reminding them of this. I made you a promise. I won't break my covenant, but my covenant requires you to do some work. By the way, the covenant God made with us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We can forsake him. We can leave him why? How? By forsaking this place, by forsaking his word, his commandments. He won't leave us, but we choose to leave him all the time. You do realize, God, I told, I mentioned this last week, God gave us this book as the, as Hebrew says, as an ensample, as an example for us. Why? Because we're just like this. But, but for the time, we don't worship other gods. I've never bowed down to another God. You're correct. But I'm almost 100% certain at some point or another, our wallet has ruled what we do. If you're in my age bracket, this thing's probably ruled what you do. We've let something else take priority over what God's told us to do, which means we have other gods. We just call them American Express and Visa and MasterCard, and iPhone, and Android, if you're a weirdo, okay? There's like four of you that got that joke, okay? 
these people are, God's reminding them here. Go back to Judges chapter two. Let's finish up this particular section here. And ye shall make no league, verse two, with the inhabitants of the land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. So now God is actually kind of going back on his promise from Judges chapter uh, one, verse two. I have delivered the land into his hand. He's stating here, because you haven't done what I asked you to do, I'm not going to hold up my end of the deal. You ever make a deal with your kids like that? If you eat all of your dinner, you get this. If you clean your room finally because there's rats and mice and, you know, ants crawling on your pillow because you're a nasty human being. Okay, if your kid's room is that bad, please, we, we, we can help you. Okay, that's just grody. But you ever make a deal like that with your kids? Okay, clean your room and this will happen. Or, hey, if everybody does this, this, and this, we're going to go letter B, whatever it might be. Anybody ever do that? Please tell me I'm not the only bad parent in this room, okay? All right, cool. God made his children a deal. You drive out the inhabitants, I've delivered the land into your hand. But it requires some work. So he's calling them out. You're not doing the work. No deal. Come on, tell me you've had that bad moment as a parent with your kid where you made him a pretty sick deal. Hey, one of my daughters doesn't like food for whatever reason, unless it's macaroni and cheese, nuggets, and not even McDonald's nuggets. She's that weird. She doesn't even like McDonald's nuggets. They're like the Aldi ghetto frozen nuggets. They barely have to be warm and she eats them, okay? And, but if it's not certain things, so we, we make our kids eat whatever's at the table. I learned that a long time ago. And you have to have at least one bite of everything that's at the table, whether you like it or not. Liver and onions was the worst part of my childhood. I ate a whole plate of mashed potatoes and there was like one bite of liver buried under a pile of starch. It was, I can still taste it. It's like metal and blood and onions. Oh, iron. Yeah, gross. Still nasty. It's, it's the body's filter. Don't eat that. <laughs> okay. But we make our kids eat like that, but we'll, we'll make a deal. If you will eat all of this, because we know it's good for you. We know it doesn't taste bad. I know you might not, you've never had it before and you might not like it. And it, it might just be something you're not a fan of. If you'll eat all of this, we'll have like an Oreo or something. We've all done something like that at some point. But if she doesn't do the work, she doesn't get the reward. In chapter 1, and in all of the book of Joshua, and in Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God told the children of Israel exactly what they had to do. And he warned them in Numbers 33, if you don't do the work... I don't hold, in, hold up my end of the deal. That's how basic contracts work. And unfortunately, the children of Israel are going to realize God is a God of his word. He's not going to leave them. He's not going to forsake them. He won't break his covenant with them because he loves them. But he's going to let their choices ruin their future. That's the beauty of free will. We do what's right, God rewards us. We do what's wrong, you reap what you sow. The children of Israel are about to learn that a lot of times in a row. And here's the thing. God gave this as an example. Why? Because we do the same stupid things over and over and over and over again, thinking 
we're going to get a different outcome this time around. Wasn't it Einstein that said that that's like basics of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different outcome? Insanity, there we go. We're all insane. Yay. We don't need medication for that. We need Jesus. Because here's the problem. We're no different than these human beings. We do the same stupid wrong thing over and over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And then when it goes badly and all falls apart, we're like, why? And God's like, you're stupid. And we're like, oh, I'm sorry. And we get it fixed. And then about a week or two later, we're right back into the same junk. We okay? I'm just getting it. We're, we're just getting started, by the way, here. Here's a weird little side note. Let's take a second. This had to have been Jesus, by the way, that shows up. Anybody know why? Go with me to 1 Timothy. We're gonna, I told you, we're going to go off track for just a, just a brief moment because I found this interesting. Right? This had to have been Jesus, if you will. The, the, the term we would use that in Bible study is a Christophany, a, an appearance of Jesus Christ before his physical birth. Okay? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 17. Now unto the king eternal, talking about the Lord, immortal, invisible. The only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This gives us the idea that God the Father can't be seen. Invisible usually means you can't see it. Are we okay? All right. One of my favorite things to watch is, uh, is a channel on YouTube called Fail Army. where It's kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos from back in the day, except people actually get hurt, and it's kind of humorous. One that was phenomenal, I watched just the other day, this guy is running into a store, running full steam and he goes face first into a glass window a glass door and bounces off awesome it was great why because for whatever reason he wasn't paying attention and the glass must have been clean enough that it was invisible you, there you hit a right angle you're not going to see that you and i can't see god the father by the way that's where the faith part comes in go with me to the last chapter of this same book, 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 16. 1 Timothy 6, 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. If we can't see him, how did he show up to the children of Israel? Because this was Jesus. Jesus is the part of the Godhead, if you will, the Trinity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one part that's physical. By the way, he's still physically alive. When he resurrected, it wasn't just in a spirit form. There was a physical form of him, and he's still in heaven that way. If he wasn't, we don't have salvation. That's a massive importance there. Jesus showed up. This is the Lord himself, and he's going on. I made a deal with you. I made a covenant with you. I pulled you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land that I promised about 550 years prior. And I made a deal. You conquer this land. You drive out the inhabitants. You live here and you make it your own. I'll give it to you. But verse 3, Judges 2 verse 3, Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. Why? Because at the tail end of verse 2, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? You realize that's such a simple question right there. You didn't obey. Why? Yeah, you ever ask that question to somebody that's done something wrong, whether it's your own kids or somebody you work with or whatever it might be, and you're just like, what's going through your head right now? 
Like, why would you do this? You realize that these people he is specifically addressing, about half of them would have been old enough to remember the Red Sea. The children, remember anybody under the age of 21? They're all now the elders of Israel. The oldest portion of the population genuinely remembers the Red Sea, manna, water from the rock, the sun standing still for 24 plus hours, all of the victories God's given them. They remember all of this. They remember the covenant God gave. They remember the 10 commandments, the physical copy of the 10 commandments. These folks were there when God gave them the command and they went through all of the work and effort to build the tabernacle and all of its accoutrement, all of that stuff. These are the people God's talking to. And he's just, why? I've been taking care of you for 60, 70 years now. Why would you do this? Why would you quit now? I'm saying that because these, these were the old people and they quit. I'm too old. I can't do that stuff anymore. Did, did God give an expiration date? If you're over the age of 65, you're allowed to quit now. Joshua was 110. Caleb was nearly that old. Those guys didn't quit. God doesn't have an age limit. Moses was 120. Abraham lived to be 175. God doesn't have an age limit. Well, I can't do what I used to, but you can do what you can. But we, we're Americans. 65, we quit. Why? Because. Why? Mm-hmm. There's no real valid answer for that. If you're retired, can I be honest? You have more time to help do the work of the Lord than anybody else. I don't. I have four psycho little children at home and a small zoo in my house and a school and staff and workouts and runs and trying to like be a functional adult, which is not good for me. I'm not good at it. And you don't have any major thing on the schedule. What's stopping you from going soul winning? You're doing some of the basics. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but that's the group that Jesus is talking to here. Because they're the elders of Israel. They're the ones in charge. Enough meddling. Let's keep moving here. Look at verse 4 with me. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. This, this sunk in. This meant something. And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. They repented of what happened and made a sacrifice, trying to make amends for their disobedience. Gives us the idea that these people, if, if anything, their heart was in the right place. Are we okay with that? Does that concept make sense here? They may have done wrong. They may not have completely obeyed. But they recognized it when they were called out and they tried to make amends in verse 6. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. So this gives us an idea that these first five or six verses are kind of, if you will, a retrospective. Joshua, we found out, died in chapter 1. Chapter 2 at the beginning is kind of like a, if you will, a bit of a recap here. God shows up, tells the people, you got to do what's right. I gave you a challenge. I gave you a promise. I gave you a job to do. Do that job. And I promise I'll take care of you. Don't do the job. 
you reap the rewards of doing wrong. They repent of this, but unfortunately that repentance doesn't last very long. Because here's the problem. I personally believe a lot of this repentance was outward show. Why? Because it didn't sink into the next generation. True repentance should have been taught to the next generation that came behind them, and it wasn't. Go to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. I've been born and raised in church. We've been here 24 and a half years at this church, but I've been in church since like nine months before I was born. I've I've been in church a long time, thousands upon thousands of hours in church. Uh, majority of my life has been in buildings like this. And you, you very quickly learn as a staff kid or preacher's kid all the right things to do and say at all the right moments. You know, we're the group that has like half the songbook memorized. We don't know what any of the words mean. We just know all of them by heart, okay? We're the group that's here before and after and all that lovely stuff. We know everything that we're supposed to do. And we also, as a lot of times staff kids and preacher's kids, we know when to repent at the right moments. Just, just, just right. And just, just the right amount of crying, just the right amount of, you know, tears and repentance to, to get out of trouble. But it's not real repentance. Your kids do the same thing. Adults all the way down. Little kids especially, oh, I'm so, and they'll weep and they'll cry, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And four seconds afterwards, they're doing the exact same garbage they were doing before. Joel chapter 2, look at verse 13. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. That repentance has to be rend your heart, that's, that's an internal repentance, that's not just a, I'm going to cry for show because I want to get out of trouble. Repentance in the, in the Christian life, for a lot of us, we use it as our get out of jail free card. I'm going to repent and get, get, make a public display because I want everybody to think I'm okay. But inside, nothing's changed. That's exactly what the children of Israel are doing here. And you know why? Because we can go back to Judges chapter 2 and keep reading this chapter and realize The repentance didn't mean much. Go back with me. Judges chapter two, verse five. And they called the name of that place Bochum and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So these people had this outward repentance. They even made a big sacrifice, made a big display of it. Jump down with me into verse seven. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, which by the way is a phrase we've already seen before who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. That little portion right there in verse 7 is key. These are the people that, I, I already mentioned them, they've seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. There's a whole group in this room, you were alive and functional enough to pay attention of the, during the revival of the 60s and 70s with guys like John Rice and Jack Hiles and some of the amazing things God did in America during what would probably be the last major revival in the United States. Are we okay? Your generation saw something mine's never seen. I'm not that old, but my generation's never seen anything like a nationwide revival. The kids behind me those that are in our school now in that age bracket, nowhere close to revival. 
So your generation, those of you that are older, we're talking into your 60s and 70s, you can tell us, we've seen God do amazing things, and it's awesome, it's great to hear stories, but my generation doesn't experience, has never experienced that. We don't know what that looks like. That's exactly what's happened here. When this generation, this older generation passed off the scene, the repentance was gone because they never passed along the revival to their kids. They, they never passed it along. Somewhere along the lines, they got complacent in the fact that God did something once. And we can talk about all the glory days of when God did something, but doing nothing to bring that back. Look at verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the Mount of Ephraim, in the north side of the hill Gaiash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, giving us an indication that this entire age bracket, all of the older folks have now passed away. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord. And again, key phrase right at the end here, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. There was an entire generation that had never seen God do those amazing things. They'd heard stories, but they'd never seen it. That's my age bracket. That's my generation. We, we didn't live through any of those revivals. Now, we got to see the, t the, the side effects, I would say, of revival. We grew up going to Christian school. We grew up going to all the Bible camps and things like that that didn't exist prior to the 60s and 70s. You realize Christian schools in America, just the way they are today, didn't exist at all prior to the 1960s, okay? That, Mickey Carter down in Florida fought that battle with the Supreme Court. And all. That was a literal side effect of some of those revivals. Are we okay? So we've experienced side effects, but we've never experienced the full thing, the full, the full scope of a nationwide revival. This generation that's about to step in here in Israel, and if you will, they're stepping into power, they're stepping into leadership roles. They know the side effects. You realize they're living in the promised land. They're in the place God's promised them. They've heard the stories. They're physically seeing the side effects, but they don't have any experience with it. I'm a second generation Christian, technically third generation Christian if you count grandma, but really, I'm a second-generation Christian, born and raised in church. He was not. He's experienced some things and got saved at an age where he can remember doing wrong and what God did to change his life. My life's been kind of the same throughout. I'm a preacher's kid. It really has. I've been in church my whole life. Prior to salvation, yes, was I a sinner? Yes, very much so. But quite honestly, probably not as bad as some. Why? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a preacher's kid. We're stupid. We're dumb. We used to figure out all kinds of fun ways to break into this building, which before we got new windows, there was a lot. Right? But, you know, if that's the extent of my bad things was breaking into church, it, Quite honestly, I, I don't have that level of experience. So my relationship with God is a little different than his. Are we okay with that? You got to think that through because here's the problem. 
in a lot of instances, this church has been around long enough. We're not just on second generation Christians anymore. We're on third and fourth generation Christians. Read through the book of Judges. As those generations got deeper and deeper, their relationship with God got shallower and shallower. Why? We weren't passing along the actual revival that one generation had experienced. We were passing along stories. We can't just pass along stories because if you read the Bible like it's a collection of stories, it's just a book. If you read it like it's actually God-breathed words, it starts revival. And according to Joel, rend your heart, that should start internally, and then it bleeds out outwardly. God looketh on the inward appearance, or God looketh on the heart, man looketh on the outward appearance. You know what I'm talking about? We need to be careful about that. I, I say this lovingly. Folks, for the most part, this is the older generation in church. I've said that repeatedly over the last few weeks because it's, it's of massive importance. If we are not working overtime to teach the next generation, by the way, that includes some of you oldest ones teaching my generation. We still have a lot to learn. We think we know it all. We really do. And we'll tell you we know it all, but we don't. We're flying by the seat of our pants, just like you were at our age. Teach us. And in turn, help us teach the next generation after us because America needs another revival. It needs it more than it's probably needed it in its entire history. We can't fly on a revival, on the side effects of revival from 50 and 60 years ago anymore. We can't. We need another one. And that means we need to teach the next generation what God can do. We need to show them what God can do, not just tell them. Well, how do we show them what God can do? We need to be as active and as hardworking Christians as we can possibly be. Because God promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But being a good Christian means we have to actively seek after him and actively chase him down, actively get as much of God as we possibly can. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us.